Hi, I'm Emmy Award-winning TV reporter Mara Skivelkampo, joined by Pulitzer Prize winner Wesley Lowry and former senior magazine editor Keith Reed. This week, we're joined by Dr. Ebony Jade Hilton, practicing physician at the University of Virginia Charlottesville and founder of Goodstock Consulting. Today on Run Tell This, the doc is in, and she has something to say to COVID anti-vaxxers. Plus... Why did social media star Olivia Jade choose Jada Pinkett Smith's Red Table for her first interview and Wesley's follow-up reporting on serial killer Samuel Little? So this actually felt like a really slow news day. So the fact that I feel like it's a slow news day says a lot about what the past year has been like. Just like as an observer and, and, and writer and talker about the news, it, it feels slower. It doesn't feel like Every single day is full of existential calamity like it has been for the last, you know, 300 and, and X days, right? Um, but, I, but I wonder if that's the calm after the storm or the calm before. Well, like, I, I, have, I, like, I have a feeling that, that like Trump's not done. We, haven't heard the, we have not heard the last of him. Um, he's going to do something before this inauguration. I don't know what that thing is, but he's, but he's going to do something. Um, in fact, there's a story in the last couple of days here in Pennsylvania that he had a had a call with the the Republican Speaker of the House and asked very pointedly if there was any way that they could work together to overturn the election results in Pennsylvania. Right. Like that's a that's a thing. But I think he's been calling around. Like, didn't he call someone in Georgia and try to do the same thing? Yeah, the Secretary of State. Right. Yeah. So he's frantically looking for allies and finding none. Well, I guess I guess for me, the thing I'm thinking is it's slow because n- not everything feels so life and death. Mm. Things are happening. He's na- Biden's naming members to the con- to Congress. Stuff's playing out on the vaccine or on climate or, you know, COVID, obviously, still. But there is kind of this. I mean, so much of what I think was so hard during the Trump years or has been so hard during the Trump years is no matter what your politics. Right. The way the administration behaved was very erratic. And so you couldn't wake up in the morning and assume a war hadn't been started or someone hadn't been fired or the president wasn't in a fight with a football player or a hip hop star. And in the Biden years, we know that's not going to be true. Right. It's not like he's not going to do things that some of them won't be controversial. Some of them won't be wrong. But there's a sense of, oh, all right. Cool. He's naming these people to cabinet. Let's see what they do. Let's, you know, everything feels back at the track that politics is kind of supposed to be at. One thing that I perhaps kind of selfishly hope is that the Biden years can kind of get to more of that, where every day it's not, what did this man do? What's going on? How are we going to? And I think that even us just snapping back to that, it makes everything feel way less. Oh, yeah, sure. He named seven cabinet people today, right. whatever. You know, like, right. <laughs> that's nothing. Right. right. But that's what I thought <laughs> when I realized me, that actually... the vaccination started today. I was like, it's such a slow news day. And I'm like, wait a minute. There's mm. like major news happening. But it's not the president cursing somebody out on Twitter. Well, let me ask you all this, though. Is it really a good thing? I get the the return to quote unquote normalcy, but is it a good thing? I think on some level, there are more people who are just broadly and generally aware, not necessarily informed, because a lot of the awareness is around misinformation. Right. But I think more people like the fact that that both these candidates pulled in more votes, like there were more votes in this presidential election than there were ever votes in the presidential election before says something that says something about the fact that the that that if nothing else, the electorate was 
energized that people are paying attention. They might be paying attention to nonsense, but they're paying attention to something. Well, one of the things that Melissa Harris Perry said um, when she was a guest on our show that I think about all the time, she said, you know, the reason I loved the Trump presidency is because all the Confederate statues started coming down and people started using terms like white supremacy, you know, just became part of the, the just the language. So there were a lot of positives that came out of the struggle, but I feel like it's a bit parallel to what we go through as humans, you know, change, unpleasant change, turmoil can lead to our biggest periods of growth right? It can change us in really positive ways. We tap into strength we didn't know we had. We make changes that are necessary, but it's also unsustainable. Like you can't be in a period of turmoil and grief indefinitely because you will die of a heart attack. You'll die of like some stress induced illness. So I feel like that way as a country, it's true as a country as well. Like, okay, we've gone through this four years of upheaval. I do think we've come out better for it. It has exposed a lot that needed to be exposed. But I'm tired, y'all. I just need to chill for a few years. <laughs> I, I feel you. I, I don't know if I, we don't have to get into it, but I don't know if I agree we came out better for it. I think a lot of the things that were that were exposed give me more pause and more fear and more anxiety about the next couple of years than they do than they do give me hope. Right? Like we 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 are we are painfully aware. I mean, I think a lot lots of people were already aware how of of how racism and hate and misogyny and all those things were were present in our society but to see them exposed on the on the level like armed white supremacists planning to to kidnap a governor i'd rather know who like my neighbors like are the, though yeah i'd rather know who they are but i'm just saying like does that does that really give you a sense of peace I'm, I'm, i'd rather like know this. i'd rather know <laughs> i would rather know i can't protect myself from what i don't know exists and it's Fair not that enough. i didn't know that those things existed but i really didn't believe that they were as close to the surface as they were i really thought that most of what we've seen was left in the past like seeing white supremacists marching carrying torches like i never thought i would see that in my lifetime you know in isabel wilkerson's book cast she compared it to and i'm gonna screw this up it's like trying to remember a comedian's joke because she's so brilliant there's no way i can retell it with the same brilliance, but you know, she compared it to like a virus or bacteria that's frozen in ice. And when that ice thaws out, you can get sick from it again. And I feel like that's what we've seen. All right. Moving on to something far more trivial. Olivia Jade, uh, Lori Laughlin's daughter, a 21 year old social media star has spoken out now for the first time since her parents uh, were sentenced to prison for the college bribery scheme. And the reason I, think this is interesting for us to talk about is because she chose the red table. So this is Jada Pinkett's show on Facebook. And the one of the preview clips that they put out was of Jada Pinkett's mother saying, I don't want her here because she's trying to use black women to get redemption. I just found it really ironic that um, she chose three black women mm-hmm. to reach out to for her redemption story. I feel like here we are, a white woman coming to black women for support when we don't get the same from them. It's just, it's, it's bothersome to me on so many levels. Her being here is the epitome of white privilege to me. If you look at, so the college cheating scandal is, is very close to another issue that's being, that's being discussed, especially with the, with the new administration coming into office, which is where should, where should we as a country be on um, public policy as it relates to higher education and as it relates to the cost of higher education, right? So you have these uber wealthy 
connected families paying in some instances more money than what than it would have actually cost to get the degree right just to get you in just to like imagine that like i'm gonna pay more money for you to get into this school than it would have cost for you to actually just like go through four years of the school i can't fathom that and more importantly most people and in particular most black folks can't can't really fathom that so what we're talking about now and a lot of the discussion that uh, that I've seen in, in I've seen in the last few weeks has been around this idea of will the Biden administration and will Congress with the new administration act to relieve uh, and discharge college debt from people who are who are overburdened, right? So these two stories intersect. You've got this wealthy, privileged white young lady going in front of an audience and using uh, and using black women, using this platform that's been created by black women to talk to the country and say whatever it is that she has to say about her parents having been convicted of spending this obscene amount of money just to buy your way into a college that most people can't afford. At the same time, that there's a whole discussion that, that primarily or, or, or more intimately impacts black families about the cost of, of college and, and the enormous burden of debt that's coming out. 100% honestly, when it first happened, I didn't look at it and say, oh my God, like how dare we do this? I was like, why is everybody complaining? I'm confused what we did. Yeah. Right. And that's embarrassing to admit. Right. That's embarrassing within itself that I walked around my whole 20 years of life not realizing like, you have insane privilege. You're like the poster child of white privilege right. and you had no idea. At the same time, I mean, look, it's just, I'm, I'm a big believer in you can do whatever you want with your platform, right? Because I don't want nobody coming up in here telling us who we can have on the podcast. And Listen, who we let's be clear. If she on, on was like, so I want to like, come on Run Tell This, I'd be like, yes, please. I mean, the Zoom link is here. Right. And, <laughs> like, and at the very minimum, right? Like, we would have the right to have a conversation. Yeah, well, because a big part of the conceit of this show is to bring people who've been involved in controversy to the red table to talk right. it out. Because then we all watch it, <laughs> right. right? You know, like this also isn't, you know, like I, I do think that that context is important. This is who she talks to. People who are engaged in some type of public celebrity adjacent controversy and has a like, let's fully talk it out. Right. And so I get that. I think that makes sense. I think the other thing I've been thinking about is that I... You know, and I think some of this is probably just from spending a lot of time in like criminal justice space and other spaces like that is I do wonder, and I haven't, maybe I haven't followed it as closely as other people, and so I like reserve the right to be wrong on this, but I, I also wonder, you know, to, I'm, I'm really sensitive to or aware of this dynamic, right? The idea that you're, you know, you've got a white, especially a white woman coming in suddenly kind of being forgiven by black America and that, and that makes everything right. And, and also, right, Two things can also be true. One is that, I don't know about y'all, when I was 17, 18 years old, I had no idea what my parents were doing in one direction or the other. And also, if they said this is the thing to do, I would have been like, okay. You know, that's one of the reasons when you're a child, you are a child, right? And, and secondarily, you know, at this point, this is a young woman, I think she's 21 now, right? Yeah. Who has, who has parents who are incarcerated, even if it's only briefly or shortly, that is a traumatic thing that happens. Now, do I think more black and brown children and young people in these scenarios should be listened to more empathetically and have, and receive platform like this? Unquestionably. And also, right, 
if we're going to be talking to insert 21 year old white influencer, why not be in a space where we can also talk about things like incarceration, about um about these issues, right? That this very conversation we're having doesn't happen if if she doesn't go on that show, much less the conversation we all watch them have about it, right? And there's some value. It, part of our job, collectively, as people with microphones, is to spur conversation about these very topics. I will say, Jada does an amazing job with these trailers. Like, oh, yeah. I, I've never seen someone build more buzz around their Facebook show right? <laughs> than any... <laughs> But it was, nominated, it was nominated for an Emmy. Like, I remember it when it got be. nominated for an Emmy, like people in the TV world were like, uh, they were literally asking for screeners. This is how some TV executives <laughs> think. OK, not that they could mm -hmm. log onto their Facebook and go see it for themselves. But I it. literally know people who asked their underlings for screeners of like the best of this Red Table show so they could understand how a Facebook show was nominated for an Emmy Award. And so, they just sent them the link any, to the uh, to the Will and Jada August Estina right. episode. Did, did, any, did <laughs> anybody get entangled in, in, in any particular episode? <laughs> right, right, right. No, that was a good one. That was brilliant on their part. I'd love to talk about Wesley's follow-up article in the Washington Post. Uh, it's the second story in a series about serial killer Samuel Little, who's believed to have killed 93 women over several decades. This one almost made me angrier because the first, okay, it's the challenges that officials face even when they did seek justice. So there, there are two parts that stood out to me. These are quotes from Wes's article. I thought it would be less weird if I read a quote. Yeah, yeah. Article. no, no, you can read the quote. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's like you narrating an audiobook, right? Um, Little has told police that he intentionally targeted women who would not be missed if they vanished or believed if they survive. That's the part that pissed me off. More than once, for example, Little beat rape charges by claiming his victim had accepted money for sex. Tell us about this second part of your uh, investigation. Yeah, so the second Little. part looked at, remember the first part, we were looking at all of these victims, all these women he's now confessed to killing, and we were looking specifically at cases where the confession's been confirmed. There are some of them where we don't quite know, but these were cases where you match up the case file, it's obvious he actually he did this. And what we found was that he was strategic in who he targeted, women on the margins of society, the vast majority of them black, poor, very often sex workers or uh, people with some type of addiction, drugs or alcohol, runaways. And he knew that he could kill these women and it wouldn't cause a stir. It might take weeks for the bodies to even be discovered. When that happened, there would be a debate if the person had even been murdered or what. The second thing we looked at, because as we went through his criminal history, this long, long criminal history, as we went through it, we saw half a dozen cases, just about half a dozen, might have been five, or you know, where he had been charged in real time, where they got him. And yet in those cases, he was able to either get off or get slaps on the wrist time and time again. Now, again, these are for serious crimes. These are for rapes, attempted rapes, attempted murders and murders, right? We're talking about he, the woman barely got away or, um, you know, or didn't get away and they caught him. And so in these cases, what we found was that, again, the criminal justice system is built kind of on the assumptions of, us, of our society, right? That when you charge someone with the crime, it's not, did they do it? It's, can you prove it in court? And then, and can you prove it to an extent that a jury of someone's peers believes it? And so we found cases, um, one of the earliest cases of these that we found was a brutal assault in suburban St. Louis, where 
he had grabbed this woman, attacked her, raped her, and then he passed out and she ran away. Uh, and they found him still asleep in the car with an electrical cord he had used to tie her down and her clothes. And But, but the police and the prosecutors uh, found her to be unreliable. She, she was self-admittedly a heroin addict. She uh, had insisted that she wasn't a sex worker, but the local beat cop said, yeah, we think she is. And so he ends up striking a deal uh, where he does, where he basically gets out on time served, right? He's been sitting in jail for a few weeks waiting for this to resolve itself, and they basically open the door and let him out, right? This is for a serious crime. We had other cases. Um, he goes to trial for murder in Florida, uh, but again, and a lot of this was before DNA evidence was fully available, right? He was the last person seen with this woman, but she was known to be drunk and, and sometimes a sex worker, sometimes, you know, and so how could they prove he was the last one with her? And so he ends up walking. And then we have this final case in, in San Diego where there are two women. The first is a uh, a woman uh, who, who is, is a sex worker. He picks her up. Uh, takes her to a place and then beats her uh, and she's able to escape and reports it to police. And a few weeks later, they find him basically in the same spot with another woman. She's beaten bloody and, and, and really harmed. I mean, catch him in the act, take him the trial on both of them. But again, in both of these cases, there was the sense of to a jury, especially in the 70s and 80s. But I imagine some of this might still factor in now where he was able to turn it into these he said, she said. So what he would often claim is, well, I admit that I hit her or I beat her because she had ripped me off. And he would use that to remove the, the sex crime charge, right? Well, no, this is a sex worker. This was a consensual transaction, but then she ripped me off. And so, yeah, I got mad and I hit her, right? And so suddenly in the mind of a jury, they're thinking, all right, well, do I believe the word of the person who's a sex worker in a different context or, in the, you know, like suddenly it created this gray area. And so what we found was that by choosing these women, he was able, even in cases when they put handcuffs on him, to get away with it time and time and time again. Um, it wasn't that he was some unknown but rather that he was someone who who we knew about. And, and frankly, you know, we've got an investigator quoted in it who talks about in court. He says the reality is back in those days, we didn't consider crimes against a sex worker as a crime where we where we were like, look, you should have been doing that. You put yourself in these scenarios. What are we supposed to do? And I, and I do think very often we end up in our, our criminal justice system makes these subjective decisions about things like this, right? How hard do we look into this murder? How hard do we look into this kidnapping? How do we, and that is reflective very often of our collective biases and we know who loses. Women, women of color, especially black people, right? LGBTQ people. But even the like the term sex worker, that's kind of such a, a recent um, term that people started using because traditionally you prostitute, yeah. prostitute, right? And so I think that we're we're evolving to some degree, and and we have heard you know sex workers are, are now raising their voice and saying no sex work is work. Mm -hmm. I remember re recently reading about Ron Jeremy, the porn star, who is now facing a number yes. of um, of rape charges. And they, you know, the women that are, are speaking out against him said that, you know, this was an open secret in the adult film industry that he was a rapist, but they were not allowed to claim rape because it was assumed to be a work hazard. 
So, for example, a woman who was on a shoot with him, they were on a photo shoot where they're supposed to be simulating certain acts, you know, because they're adult film entertainers. And he just took liberties with her. And she said she could not complain about it because the thinking in the industry was, well, you know, if you're there with him and you were bent over, like, you know, what do you expect? It's this idea of consent being muddy when consent really is very, very clear. Um, and so what kind of what has struck me about your reporting on Sam Little is how effectively he exploited the societal beliefs about who is a valuable victim, where even when he was caught and even when the women were showing up to court and they were testifying against him, that people were willing to say, eh, your pain, your suffering, your victimization, not really that significant. It's of course, right? And there's that. I mean, it's like the Christian tradition, like, you know, the least of these, right? The idea of like our health as a society, as a country, as a group of people is how do we let the lowest person, the most unsympathetic person, the uh, how do we allow them to be treated, right? And I think that that's something that we really have to grapple with. And we especially have to grapple with that in a criminal justice context, right? That so often... We see this in stories and things that are written and what gets covered in the media is that like we're always looking for that sympathetic victim, the person who we feel really bad about because it speaks to how terrible this thing was. Right. But the reality is, first of all, you know, people who are victimized by crime. Um, well, first of all, almost any of us with if we squint the right way, we can make we can make us out to be unsympathetic. Right. But, sec- but right. second, co- exactly. Right. <laughs> and, and, and second of all, the. The, the reality is we want to live in a society where no one is victimized by crime, where no one is victimized by police, where no, you know, any of these things, no matter who, no, you, know, you shouldn't, this it shouldn't be gauged on whether or not I think you are a good person or not. You shouldn't be murdered. You shouldn't be raped. You shouldn't be attacked. Right. The, the, one of the unwritten rules in any, in the prosecutor's office says, says person engaged to an ex-prosecutor is take your, your, you take your victim as they come, right? It's, it's, your victim, it does, it does not matter if, you're, if your victim, if your murder victim has a conviction for, you know, drug offenses or robbery two years ago. It does not, it does not matter, or at least it should not matter, that your victim was a, was a sex worker. Well, now that person's assaulted or raped or, or, or dead. Your victim, is your, your victim is your victim. You have a case you can, you, that you can either put before a grand jury or, or that you can prove in front of a in front of a petite jury, then then you should do that. The problem is that that doesn't really work in practice. It's a thing that gets preached, but it's not a thing that get that gets practiced. There there are all manners of all manner of decisions that get made. Like you said, Wes, that criminal justice in this country is very subjective. That we make all kinds of decisions about who prosecutors, line, individual line prosecutors, elected district attorneys, um, policy makers in, in state houses make all kinds of decisions that take away the subjectivity or take away the objectivity of what's supposed to be a, a straightforward legal process. And that's how these waters get, get muddy. Police officer doesn't believe a person's story, then that, then that crime doesn't necessarily do it. Police officer, officer doesn't believe a victim that person's crime doesn't necessarily make it in front, make it to a prosecutor who even gets to make a charging decision. Police officer makes a mistake in how they handle evidence or in how they conduct an investigation. And even if that crime makes it makes it to a prosecutor, 
prosecutor is is this it's a 50 50 shot as to whether or not the prosecutor is going to make a decision to either charge that case once the prosecutor has made a decision of whether or not they're going to charge the case what they present to a grand jury we learned this painfully in kentucky and have seen this over and over again uh with these police shootings is what a prosecutor decides to put in front of a grand jury may has a has a great impact on whether or not a person go, goes to trial and on and on and on it goes. And this individual, the, the, the problem with this, and we talked about this the last time around, is that there are, there are predators. We, t we, again, we don't, we, we don't do a great job of protecting black women in that we don't generally in this country and in our community specifically respect that black women can be victims of certain things. We don't we we tend not to believe it. We tend not to we tend not to take it seriously. And because of that, so on on the one hand, we don't believe the victims. And if you don't believe the victims or if you don't believe that the victims are victims, then you then you tend not to see the predator. Predators in in in, in nature and, and in humanity have a way of camouflaging themselves. Right. Like they rec they recognize when they can be seen and when and when they can't. They're, they're great at this. And so this guy was an example of, of like all of that stuff wrapped up into one. He, 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 he didn't have a, a law degree. He had never, no law enforcement training, none of that. But he was, he was aware enough of, of the workings of the legal system and of the biases that people carried that he was able to, sim to just simply camouflage himself for decades and kill all the people that he in, in one way, he almost saw the country and the world more clearly than a lot of us do. He, he was able to identify the weaknesses and the vulnerabilities without yeah. again not a phd not a, he was able to say well if i do this to these people this is going to work out and if i you know in a way yeah. that there's a clarity to that the last the last thing i'll say is one of the things that i think is really important going back to the victims conversation is that no person is a silo no person's an individual we have families we have friends we have other interactions so think what you want about a victim the failure to deliver justice to someone has a ripple effect that carries on across communities and throughout generations. And I think that's really important as well. We actually, we published a third part in the series that published on Friday, um, and it was about the unmatched cases. So in the, about 30 of the cases, the police still haven't figured out who the woman was. He's confessed, sometimes he's provided oh, wow. a drawing, he's given them details, and they've yet to actually match it. Memphis, he drew a drawing of a woman, gave a confession, and multiple black families came forward and said, we think that's our loved one. And, oh, and, wow. and so it speaks to when you have these failures on the front end, it's unclear if it can ever be made whole on the back end. And all of those families have been sitting and waiting for justice, for answers. It actually got me thinking, um, you know, on a personal level, and I was having this conversation with my family this week, you know, my uncle was murdered in 82. And I was I was asking my parents some questions about it this week because of the conversation we had had where you said, you know, depending on where you live, the likelihood that your killer will be apprehended is affected by your geography. And I was talking to my parents about that. And, you know, the, the killer was never caught. And um, my father said everybody knew who he was. Everybody, everybody in the neighborhood knew who this guy was. You know, he was a Puerto Rican guy who had gray eyes, which was extremely unique, you know, in that neighborhood. 
Um, and so, but there was never any justice. He said the police could not care less. It was just another poor black guy who got killed. And so he, you know, my parents retelling the story is that they didn't even, they didn't even try. They didn't even care. You know, my grandmother was a witness to the murder. She was in the apartment when it took place. And so, you know, this really, when you talk about the ripple effect, that's something my mother is turning 80 years old next year. She still talks about her brother to this day. Um, and so it's something that it's a wound that never heals, especially when there's no. Yeah. And, and how that erodes. We talk all the time about trust between the black community and police or criminal. Well, what happens when a community is victimized and either through direct interaction or through apathy, apathy, the law enforcement shows it doesn't care. The line I always used was I said, a relationship can break down for two different sets of reasons. It can break down um, it, it can break down because of the presence of negative behavior, or it can break down because of the absence to meet um, expectations, right? My girlfriend can leave me because I cheat on her. She can also leave me if I forget her birthday, right? right? You know, like it's not- <laughs> That would be a little overreactive, but it's not- And I think that when Neglect. we think about government's relationships with people and law enforcement, we only think about one of them, right? We think about the police shooting. We think about the, right. you know, the move bombing. We think about this, you know, Fred Hampton. We don't think about, you go to some neighborhoods in our country and every person knows an unsolved murder victim. None of, you know, well, what legitimacy then do the police have in that neighborhood? What likelihood are you going to cooperate with them? And so I just think we always, when we think about black communities, we can't decenter the the reality that for so long, Every institution in the country has failed and aggressively done harm to black communities. And that that lingers. It's not a thing that you hit reset and it, and it restarts. You got generations of distrust and trauma that are based in reality. Okay, so I'd like to bring in our guest now. Dr. Ebony Jade Hilton is here with us. Dr. Hilson, thank you so much for being here. So I was saying when we started the taping that, you know, this morning when I was trying to figure out what we should talk about today, because, you know, we try to decide the topics um, very last minute so that they feel fresh, you know, because this is a news podcast, so we don't plan things that far in advance. And I felt very much like it was a slow news day. And as I'm thinking like, oh, God, it's so slow. Like, what are we going to talk about? I'm realizing like, hello, like we're in the midst of this mass casualty event. We're in the midst of this third wave where the United States has just passed 15 million infections, 285,000 people dead. And the UK just started the most significant vaccination program um, in the Western world in modern history today. So when it comes to the vaccine, you know, there's a big conversation. I feel like people are having this with their friends or having with their their family members. It's like, are you going to take it? Are you going to take it? First of all, I don't think people realize you'd be lucky if you can get it. Because the first people in line, it's not like us. Well, maybe you, because you're a doctor, so you may be exposed to populations that make it necessary for you to be protected. But it's like, you know, people who are working with COVID patients, the elderly, you know, that kind of thing. So first of all, let's talk about the priorities for vaccination. Who is actually going to get access to the vaccine? Yeah, I mean, it's as you stated, um, it, it is going to be a rollout event, right? So, you know, you mentioned we're on the third wave, but actually I would argue we're on the first wave with three peaks because the United States has never gotten under control. If you look at um, New Zealand and you, you look throughout Europe, those countries actually got it down to where they had the virus contained. We've just stacked on and stacked on stack of people that are cases and or dying. Um, in the first five days of, of December, for instance, we had over a million people being diagnosed with COVID-19. Back in, let's say, May, June, July, it took us a month to get that many 
right? So we are definitely picking up and, and turning on the gears. And so how do we kind of contain this virus that is now claimed 280,000 um, lives? Um, the vaccine is kind of that light at the end of the tunnel, but I just have to warn people that it is, it is not a cure. Um, it's just like an analogy is birth control pill. You can still get pregnant, right? And the same thing with COVID-19 vaccine. Is it 100% effective? No. Is it greatly reduce your chance? Yes. Um, does it even, are we seeing with our data, and again, this is the early data, um, and it hasn't been fully looked at and tweezed out, but in the in a quick glance, it looks like it is at least preventing severe COVID-19 cases too, which is, which is paramount, because what we don't have is a, an effective drug to cure it if you get it, right? And, um, and because of that, at this point, we're estimating that 20,000 people will be dying per week by mid-January mid of, this, of this next year, 20,000 a week. And that's, that is a real thing. There are a lot of TikTok videos where people are showing things that they do that are reckless with their health, that they do without thinking. Like one guy like bought Molly off the street from a stranger. Like people are smoking cigarettes. They're drinking like weird green soda. But then when it comes to the vaccine, they're like, no, I don't want to put that in my body. I don't know what's in it. <laughs> do you have faith in this vaccine? What do you say to people who are skeptical and worried? Right. And for one, I say I completely understand the fear. Let me just, I, truth and transparency, I get it. You know, I, I personally don't like to take medicines. It's weird. I'm a, I'm a physician, but I don't take medicines. I try to keep myself as healthy as possible. But when we have a vaccine or a virus um, that literally not only we're, we're talking about 280,000 lives, that's death. And sometimes death is a, is a good place to be if you're struggling on other ends of it. And what we know is that in the 15 million people that have been infected, how many of those that have now quote unquote recovered are now completely dependent on oxygen to be able to breathe at this point? How many of them have lost legs and arms because blood clots are forming with this, with this virus? It causes an inflammatory response that makes you form these blood clots, right? How many of them have now um, had massive heart attacks and and now they have heart failure. They're 40 years old. Now looking at a, a, another 30 years, if they live that long from heart complications, how many of them have, have had massive strokes? Um, these are things you, you see on throughout Twitter. There are people that are saying, I am a long hauler. And my symptom is that I am just completely fatigued. My brain is not working properly. I can't, I can't function like I used to. I can't walk a block down the street without feeling like, I'm gonna pass out. And these aren't old people. These are people our ages. They're 30 years old, they're 40 years old. And what does that do to the longevity of life? And that's what I think people have to remember. This too shall pass as far as 2020, but the lingering effects of COVID may not leave you. Love to hear kind of your thoughts on it. It's part of me almost worries that the closer a vaccine gets, the more reckless people get because they feel like, all right, we're done. We're out of this. It's going to be solved soon. It's not, you know, it's no longer this big dangerous thing that like no one knows how it works or where it came from. And by the way, Donald Trump's the president. So who knows what's going to we're, we're in this much more, you know, even as people are still getting sick and people are dying for a lot of folks, we're in this moment that feels way less urgent, right? We feel like we can be a little bit more lackadaisical with things. Every national politics have shifted. Vaccine, they're giving out vaccines. It'll just be a matter of time before I get. 
what is there a risk in that as well, right? In a world where where people start behaving differently and it counteracts some of what the vaccine's effect can be. And also the, you know, what does the timetable look like before we actually have any critical mass of people using something like this? Completely. I mean, we know vaccines, again, are not 100% effective. Again, the analogy of birth control pills, right? Um, but what we also know is that in order to create herd immunity, you need at least 60 to 70% of the population that's living around you that you're interacting with to also have that same immunity level. So if we are having large groups of people saying, I'm not gonna take this at all, right? Um, then you don't get that same level of protection that, you, that we hope to be um, what we have from measles, mumps, and rubella, right? That we all got vaccinated for. What we saw is that when anti-vaxxers said, we're not gonna do that anymore, we started to see outbreaks of measles throughout the United States, right? And they have real life consequence. Um, and these, you know, these groups of persons that have distrust, we really do have to do a better job, I feel like in the medical community of talking to people to say, why do you distrust it, right? Because we know it's very different reasons. African-American community, for sure. I know exactly why we distrust it because the Tuskegee experiment was 10 years before I was born, right? They still have dirty water going to Flint, Michigan today. Um, if you look at the Hispanic community, the undocumented immigrants, how do I know, especially with, with Trump and, and his administration threatening to deport people every day, how do I know if I go into the hospital to get this vaccine that I'm not gonna have a car waiting for me when I get out, right? And we even know with, with even the, the Trumpers who have now heard for 10 months that this is a hoax and don't worry about this, that now they truly do believe in their soul that this is nothing. And what do you do when 70 million people voted for that this is nothing? We as a, that's, we have to get real um, as, as the United States of America and looking outside of our bubble to say, what are all these other countries? What are they doing in, in continents? Look at the continent of Africa, right? What are they doing that's working, that they're not burying their own at 3,000 people a day? Um, and, and how are we not learning from our own same mistakes? You know, I want to tell people that even if you get your vaccine, let's say you get your vaccine in February, that might be because you are in phase two, meaning that you have some um, immune compromise or maybe you're an essential worker, you're working in the grocery store or you're a teacher. Well, the majority of Americans won't be vaccinated until, for completion's sake, May, June, right? So just because you had yours does not mean, again, you have that protective bubble around you and you have to still do the same exact things we've been preaching for the last 10 months of wearing your mask, washing your hands, staying away from um, large groups. One of our prior guests, Karen Atti at the Washington Post had written a, wrote a story, I wanna say it was about a week ago that talked, that talked about not shaming uh, in particular, African-Americans who are weary of a virus for the exact reason that you talked about. Like this is a community that has a long legacy of having of having suffered um, some some significant horrors as a result of the medical establishment or at least the medical establishment of the time. And it goes beyond just the Tuskegee experiment. I mean, you can go we don't we don't have to recount all, all of the things, but like. There, there are some there, there are terrible human things experimentation. That, that exist there, right? There's a lot of human experimentation. Human experimentation, absolutely. The, the, the modern, modern gynecology, like the, the legacy of like where we got that from, um, stem cell treatments and how it, Henrietta Lack, like there's a, there, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's an ugly, gruesome history there. But number two, there's some, 
there's some folk in our in our community and a lot of communities who are getting their medical advice from people who got D's in science class. There's some, it, that, that there's some, there's some, nah, 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 we go, we go, if we're going to talk about it, we're going to talk about it, right? Don't nobody want to talk about, you know, using herbs and keeping their body, you know, and keeping their body in shape and this, that, and the third. I'm like, bruh, what is the disconnect? I honestly think it's the same vein. It's the same vein. And what do I mean by that? Um, lack of communication and truth and transparency from the medical community. So yes, right up front, the way that we can really start to earn trust, it's just like a relationship. Men, if you mess up, go ahead and be honest with it. It may cause a breaking of that relationship and I'm done we, with you. We, we ain't have to do that. We ain't have to do that. We ain't have to do that on this show. Oh we ain't have so to do that on this show. I'm so glad to have another woman here for once. Right. We ain't have to do that on this show. Right. But it is one of those Keep in mind that I'm an artist and I'm sensitive about my shit. Can we? It is about truth and transparency where the medical community has to be vocal about, um, yes, we practice eugenics right up into 1970s where we were taking out women's uteruses. Um, and, and North Carolina was one of the last states that actually did away with that. Like, we need to start speaking to that and saying that, how do I hold myself accountable? Because what the Tuskegee experiment, they didn't even get an apology until Bill Clinton. Okay, so let's, let's just really start to, um, to address that elephant in the room. Because when you don't, when you're holding back that vulnerable conversation you allow other people to come in the room and have it for you but we have these echo chambers of people having these conversations because the medical community has given up that position um and we either gave it up or we were kicked off the throne and that's where i think um it comes down to black physicians and black nurses and black respiratory therapists to have these conversations with our people to say i get it i don't come from a medical family and because of that, when I go home, I'm knocking on doors and let's talk about this because we what we what we know is that right now, if black people died at the same rate as white people, there will be another twenty-two thousand black people still alive today to hear this conversation. Hmm. Twenty-two thousand. Wow, that's profound. And we and again, we haven't even hit we haven't hit the true numbers. What we're going to see in December, January, and February are going to eclipse. We're estimating 100,000 people will die in December into the first week of January. Wow. And I don't think people understand when we're screaming. I know everyone is tired of the mess. I get it. I'm tired of it too. Um, I haven't seen my family in a, in a year, like just, just not seeing them. Um, but it's one of those things of I would rather tighten up right now so I can possibly be able to say hello to my mother in 2022. So so what is the conversation that I can have that you can you like you can have that conversation because you're more more articulate about it and you're you're a trained medical professional. Right. But like for me and Wes and Mara and anybody who we encounter when we're when we're literally I encounter somebody you know, a, a few times a week in our community who is, who is, who is willfully in denial or disbelief about what this pandemic is, or even, or if they acknowledge what the pandemic is, they still carry with them the, the attitude of, you know, I'm not, I, I'm not taking that vaccine. I'm going to take my, I'm going to take my ginseng and herbs. Well, T.I. didn't T.I. said that drinking I, hot like, tea would keep him from getting COVID? It's, it, you got to, you got to get the heat in your throat. <laughs> you got to, got to get it. 
Gotta it's get like, that's, oh, that's why what, I'm telling you that, that's what he said. Figure that and out. people listen to Jeez. that. Right? Save so many lives. I mean, so so like what is the conversation? It's one of those things of tell them to think of their family and pick out one name and 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 think about that person dying. We haven't even hit the worst of this. You say that with such certainty and it's it's actually like it kind of sent chills up my spine because I've I've put cotton in my ears now. I'm following all the restrictions. I'm not leaving the house. I wear my mask when I do go out, but I can't handle that much emotional stress because I live in New York and the spring was traumatic. So I have stopped paying attention. So please like when you say that, is that you you feel very confident about that that we haven't seen the worst yet? Oh, we haven't, um, for sure. Again, if if we're looking at, so the first um, five days of December, we had a, a million cases. And what we know is that the infection fatality rate. So what is that? That's uh, everyone who's been infected, how many of those people have died? And that right now is at 1.9%. So 2% of that million, that's 20,000 people. From the first five days, we can expect 20,000 of those people to die. That was in five days. We had 31 days in December, right? Um, and we and in those five days, that wasn't even including Thanksgiving yet. Those those people that were in those five days are actually infected before Thanksgiving. So they weren't the the 3.4 million people who were traveling for Thanksgiving. Um, and and the we have to think about the residual. Um, you know, they say there's casualties in every war. Well, the casualties in this war is when. When our hospitals become overran by these cases, then stroke victims, heart attack victims, um, women going to get deliver their babies, um, yeah, like literally the infants being compromised. I've been on this big campaign about truth and transparency. So the vaccine, for instance, um, on my YouTube channel, I have a medical, medical consulting firm called Good Stock Consulting. And um, on December the 15th, I am, on the schedule to be getting the first vaccine at the hospital. And so my thought is, how do we, these naysayers that say it's, it's gonna make you sick, it's gonna do this, it's gonna do that. The best way I can I can show you better, I can tell you, watch me do it, right? Watch me put this in my arm and every day I'm gonna log in and I'm gonna tell you, do I have fevers? You can look at me, um, you know, I have my, my Zoom up, put it on YouTube so you can actually see a video of me talking. Um, and you can see what it does to my body. And I think on the medical end of that, that's what we have to do. Because again, we owe it to the community to say, we know our past trans transgressions. We know that we've lied before, historically. Um, we know that we haven't been as, as forthcoming with information as we should have, or we talk at you and not with you. And so if, if we're doing that, then hopefully the TIs of the world, um, We'll start to say, hey, especially if you have that large of a platform, stop saying things that are going to lead to children being buried, especially you have children of your own. You know, it's just it's just not you can have a lot of mouth when you got a million dollar mansion that you're not you're not the ones that's out there getting infected. So keep it tight, you know, either donate money or just just keep it real. Just keep it tight. But that kind of thing really does it. It. Um, it puts me in a different type of place. I would love to hear what you think. Part of me wonders about how much of it is the same thing that makes black Americans as a collective more vulnerable to coronavirus attribute to our collective failures to get all of the health part of it. What I mean by that is, right, 
one of the reasons that black communities and black people have been hit so hard is lack of access to uh, preventative care and primary care physicians, uh, you know, deserts where there are no hospitals, especially kind of in the rural South and the black belt. Right. And the idea that, I mean, I growing up in the burbs and whatnot, right. My, my white friends have more doctors than I do family members. They're all going to 900 different things and specialists and things. And, like, and, and part of it. And so because of that, when they got a question, they're calling the doctor or texting them or doing this or do versus a world where, you know, when you have a community that is more reliant on, well, my aunt said this or my grandma said this or someone on Facebook was saying X, Y, and Z, and no one even involved in that thread has been to a doctor in 10 years. How might that attribute to the spread? Let's just say, so I understand that the, um, that there is a distrust and the, you learn your, your patterns of communication from those who came before you. So those persons that are like, oh, don't go into the hospital. You don't need all that. All you need is herbs. They probably heard that from their parents. They probably heard that from their grandparents, right? We all know about Robitussin, right? Everybody say don't do it, but everybody know about Robitussin. Um, or, or putting, you know, rubbing onion on your chest. Maybe that's me. That's country stuff. But um, <laughs> as opposed to Vicks Vapor Rub, they have all these other treatment patterns that have been passed along through word of mouth because it simply was not safe during that time. And that was truth. Um and so what I'm hoping, though, is the medical community, we have to break generational curses of this distrust of the community. But once, once that's your, your organs have been stretched, um, there's no coming back from that. And usually what we have to do, you know, I had a patient um, last month, we had to do a lung transplant. This patient was a marathon runner, like wow. active. Um, wow. Yeah, like uh, all in his room, just pictures from his family that they sent in of, of him training for all these events. And he now has someone else's lungs in his body where he has to have chemotherapy to prevent him from rejecting these organs for the rest of his life. Wow. Okay, so this isn't something that, um, and, 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 but if you look at the numbers for COVID, he's in the recovered. I just want to make that point. He's not in, we keep on talking about the people that have died. He's a recovered person, but he will never be the same for the rest of life. Um, I did hear one thing about the vaccine that I thought was awfully concerning. Um, I heard that you can't drink for two months after getting it. Is that true? I have not heard that. Oh, <laughs> she was like, no one, no one has informed You've been out me. here listening to D students too. You've been out here talking to D it'll students. Be, it'll what, be what a disclosure on? that you have to sign before you actually get the vaccine. Let me... Let me let me guess. You heard that from somebody at a bar. No, I read it on the interwebs. It said that that was part of the reason that Russia was having trouble convincing people to get vaccinated. Most complaints that we have is that there's soreness at the site of injection or that people have um, muscle aches like we see with, with the flu um, shot that some people get. Um, some people have headaches, um, but nothing that has been to the point that it causes you to be hospitalized or our needing of a breathing tube that we see with COVID-19. And so when people are trying to determine whether or not they want to do this, I would literally sit down with my family and, and count out how many people do I know? Um, and how many of those people do I want to still know in a year's time? Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for joining us. And um, hopefully some of what you share with us tonight will convince some people to uh, embrace a vaccine with that tea, with a side of tea. 
Hey, don't forget to subscribe and please leave us a five-star review. And the conversation continues on social media. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RuntellThis underscore. Check out new episodes every Wednesday. Run Tell This is an independent production of Mara Scampo, Inc.